This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now, this week, we've got a really exciting announcement, and that is that on the 4th of December, we're going to be releasing the biggest ever clothing collection that we've ever done. The winter range is going to comprise of last year's winter jacket, we brought back in a brand new colour, and added a really warm fleece lining to the inside. We've also got an amazing fisherman's sweater. Alongside that, we've got a selection of t-shirts. They're all going to have a petroglyph-style design. So we're going to have Odin riding Sletnir. We're going to have Thor with his goats. We've got Frey and his boar. We've also got Freya and her cats. So for those that like things a little bit more simple, we're going to have a couple of t-shirts. They're going to have a petroglyph-style version of our logo on there. We've also got a selection of hats and scarves. So whatever you do, just check out the website on the 4th of December and you're going to see some amazing new products. And don't forget, the listeners of the podcast get an extra 10% off anything store-wide with the code HORNS10. So that's the code HORNS10, which will get you 10% off everything store-wide, including the new range. Welcome to the Odin Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company at Horns of Odin. And today has been an awkward one. I was meant to be joined by uh, Sean Parry as my guest host, and we are going to look at the life of Matthias Nordvig. Um, unfortunately, Sean disappeared moments before we started recording, so he's going to jump in at some point when he can. So don't be surprised if you just hear an extra voice come out of nowhere. It will be Sean Parry will be joining us at some point. So, Matthias, you you're there. Like I say, you were going to be the guest, quote unquote, but you're now co-host slash guest. You just can't have anybody fill your role, can you? Apparently not. No, <laughs> I, I suspect foul play somewhere along the line. I don't know what you've done or how you've done it, but <laughs> I'm working some dark magic over here. <laughs> <laughs> you've got rid of it. He's like nobody's taking my co-host space. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, we have all these guests on, all these um, professors from around the world, and it occurred to us, you know, we have one sat here, and we've never actually taken a, a long look at your life and how you kind of got into it and what you specialize in. So let's do that. Let's, you know, let, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I know mm-hmm. you've mentioned before that you grew up in a pagan household. You Were your parents mm-hmm. practicing pagans, did you say? Well, so, I mean, uh, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s, there wasn't, you know, much of like, you know, there wasn't the same uh, uh, ways to like be interactive with other pagans and, you know, like like getting to know about like groups that existed and all that stuff. So that was just more sort of like just just like, uh, uh, you know, the stories were there, you know it was it was sort of a a feeling more than you know know, having like rituals and stuff like that but uh but later on like in the late 90s uh, my mom caught on to the national organization of 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 danish pagans in denmark and so like she uh, she 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 enlisted us (laughs) (laughs) that's how we got more like into some some something you could call more like formal 
formal uh, also true or, or or Scandinavian paganism. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 that's when it, you, you, I would say that it, it officially started, so to speak. But I mean the 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 the, the Nordic mythology, sagas, all the old stories, folklore, and you know, also other Northern European folklore uh, and and mythology, the Celtic mythology, and so on, was was generally a part of the household when I was a kid. Um, aside from that, in the the time when I lived in Greenland, of course, the Greenlandic Inuit mythology uh, and and folklore was also sort of a part of my upbringing. So, so yeah, no, it. Uh, uh, pagan more than anything else when it comes to growing up. <laughs> so, how much does obviously coming from Denmark and being a Danish citizen? How much do you get taught at school when it comes to like I guess the overall like Nordic mythology? Because as a Brit, I would assume that you know it's rammed down your throats. It's it's what you're taught. It's, it's your history. <laughs> but is that the, is that the case? To an extent. Um, so Nordic mythology is definitely part of um, the stuff that they teach to kids. Mm-hmm. The stories are taught or told, you know, in like Danish classes, just like, you know, if you go to an English school, you have English classes about English language and literature. And then, you know, in Denmark, we have Danish classes where, you know, Nordic mythology will also be part of that. You know what? I've just, had um, a, I've just I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've just had an epiphany. I, I just assumed yeah. everybody had English classes. <laughs> I thought I honestly just assumed if people were you know if they would I, I don't know I just I guess like maybe in America I don't know if that's the same whether do they is that English classes do they yes, okay that's maybe it, maybe it's not as much as a surprise as I thought but I just always just assumed they would call I never really thought of like a Danish class and for some reason that there was like a, a big right. light bulb moment <laughs> in my head there I was like holy shit <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a thing. Like other languages and other do cultures, exist. they have like <laughs> yeah, they, they, they do exist. That's, that's the Britain coming out, isn't it? It's like all these other cultures. <laughs> hey, what can you do? <laughs> so, so yeah, um, I forgot where we were then. No, we were talking about like uh, uh, if if that's like you know North okay. mythology and all that stuff part of the school, right? Yeah, and yeah, it is, and um, like uh, in the same way, um, it's also mandated that you have as part of like when you're learning Danish in school as a kid, you will also be learning um, Swedish and Norwegian to an extent. Okay, it's like also mandated as as part of like Danish language because the languages are so you know closely related and usually that's that's more of like the older stuff like that would be like folk tales or folk songs or or some nordic mythology um in in the you know in in norwegian or in in swedish um so so it all comes together so to speak sort of like as as like a cultural and linguistic language unity um in the you know smaller classes you definitely get taught a bit more extensively than we do we get English and then a little bit of French, maybe a little bit of Spanish, and it's yeah. nobody really <laughs> listens to it, and it's it's awful. <laughs> no, I mean that's a, uh, we we have to start either German or French. Okay, and, so you do that as well as Norwegian. Yes. Oh, cause... and of course we start English in first grade, I think, too. So yeah, um, there we go. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so at what point did you kind of realize you wanted to go down the academic route and 
really specialize in in this? That was actually in high school. I um I, I don't remember it was like first, second, or third year. We have three years of high school in Denmark. Um but but one of those years I was like, uh yeah, I want to go to college and study Viking stuff. And and then it was just really a matter of figuring out like well, which route I wanted to take. Did I want to go like, you know, history or uh language and and literature and culture or archaeology or or what did I want to specialize in? And I ended up with uh with the language um so I uh, I signed up once uh, I had graduated uh, high school. I signed up for uh, Scandinavian languages and literature, mm-hmm. and just like uh, went from there. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, what's what's your specialist now? What would be classed as your real pinnacle topic? So formally, um, I'm I'm a philologist. Uh, what so, the fuck so, is that? Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, well, a philologist is uh, in principle uh, somebody who works with languages but isn't as good as it as a linguist. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right. That's at least what the linguist would, would say. Um, no, so so a philologist is uh, um, somebody who, again, like a Scandinavian context. Uh, it's a it's somebody who is familiar with uh, all the, the the literature, the Scandinavian literature. Mm-hmm. So I have a base education in Scandinavian literature and languages, taking like uh, classes and exams in Norwegian and Swedish and Danish and Icelandic, and um, I, uh, I I've like worked with um, the literary history of Scandinavia and how do you analyze a poem and uh, how do you analyze a book. And, you know, uh, that, that's my base education. Uh, so that's like two year, uh, of your, of your BA, uh, that you do that. And then, um, uh, the structure back then of the educations was that you could, uh, you could choose a, uh, what would in an American college context amount to like a minor, um, in, in Viking studies. So I did a year of of specializing in viking studies in my ba too okay so the the phil philology whatever whatever it was was that that wasn't just viking based on not even mythology based that was just like a general subject and then you specialized in in that after yeah yeah so like there was like the, the philology was like broadly like scandinavian stuff um literature and so on oh we have sean back hi <laughs> He's he's called in as a guest, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the only way I could bloody do it. That was he's yeah, here though. We uh, we 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 have started and we kind of fluffed our way through. So yeah, how how are you doing, Sean? I'm good. I'm much better now. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Fuck it, hell. Uh, we. I was just asking Matthias about his life and what got him into specializing in, in Nordic mythology, I guess. Um, so we were up to the word I can't pronounce, philology, philology, uh, mm-hmm. which was Matthias's <laughs> specialist subject before he decided to go down the route of being Viking studies. So yeah, so 
where do we go from there? How do you get into where you are now? I, I did this uh, one year study on, on on Viking studies, it was called. And that was a, sort of a, a interdisciplinary uh, subject where you were studying the Viking age from a philological perspective. So the literature. <laughs> That's the word. Yes, uh, an archaeological perspective as well, and a perspective of history of religions, and sort of uh, uh, more also just mixing in basic uh, uh, history as well. So, uh, so, so coming at it from very many different ang- angles, and this, um, I think, if you're if you're familiar with like the the, uh, the way that the colleges work in, uh, especially in North America. Um, uh, uh, I think uh, you would assume that a college education is perhaps more diverse. Like you're taking many different subjects in many different fields. You have to have some general ed. You can, uh, you know, specialize in a certain direction at some point and, and so on. But this, this actually works a little differently in Europe. Like you're already is, is, uh, supposed to be specializing once you're entering college and your BA, I don't know exactly if that's the same at the the earliest levels in the UK, but um, that's at least how it is in Denmark and, and elsewhere in, in the European continent that you're you're specializing already from the beginning. So doing an inter, interdisciplinary study in your third year of a BA in in Denmark at the time when I did it was actually quite special. This was not something that that you did did that often, and and it was actually kind of hard too. And that um, once I, I I graduated my BA and did a, did my MA, I actually had to uh, fiddle with the system to to get an interdisciplinary uh, education. Um, I wanted to basically study everything Viking at that time, uh, and and so with a basis in like language and literature. I had to like work my way through to 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 get special uh, permission to take um, uh, like uh, credits in history or in archaeology and and other fields. So um, you know, I, I I did that. I I, I fucked around for uh, <laughs> with the system for a bit to 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 get into the other departments and and wound up with a decent sort of like interdisciplinary. Uh, um, approach to Viking Age with my with my MA. So my MA is actually uh, tailored by myself more than anything else. I feel like I'm learning why you know bits about absolutely everything. Well, yeah. <laughs> but this is why whenever I mention anything, you know the answer to it. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to jump in and say that... Um, uh, I also fiddled with the system to 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 get into university. So this is the first thing I'm going to say on this podcast is <laughs> I actually you incriminate yourself. I faked, yeah, yeah, I faked my results to get into uni. Oh wow! So yeah, and they didn't actually check. So I was like, well, I guess that's good enough then. That I mean, that <laughs> says a lot about the uh, the British university system, I guess. I think it says a lot about me as well. <laughs> well, I didn't want to. I wasn't going to bring that up. Oh well. Yeah, I just uh, I I had to have like uh, an A and a B and this and that whatever. So I was like, well, I just bunch together a couple of C's and I can you know, get it all change done. this line here and this one looks like a, a <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Matthias, uh, I'm just um, I was just curious from what you were just saying then. So so how important do you think 
uh, it is to study other cultures to be able to have a greater knowledge on on all of the uh, the Viking Age as well. I think it's incredibly important. I think um, you can't really you can't really understand the, the culture that existed in 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 that distant, especially the pre-Christian past, um, without also having um, some basis in uh, first of all other European cultures in general and their histories, and and aside from that, uh, of course also. In in order to not fall uh, fall into that uh, what I would call sort of like the European trap of understanding our own cultures, uh, you would also need to 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 have uh, uh, some decent knowledge about uh, other cultures from the rest of the world. Um, and this is what I've been working a lot with in um, uh, in my PhD. Actually, um, uh, I have uh, I've used uh, material from. Aboriginal Australia, um, uh, North America, um, uh, Indonesia, uh, uh, yeah, plenty of places in, in Asia in general and Africa as well to yeah. to to understand uh, better the material from um, medieval Iceland, mm -hmm. Norse mythology, right? Um, and <laughs> it's interesting because I I've I've met a lot of pushback for different reasons, but one of the reasons that I could often see was actually uh, that that the people who were criticizing what I was saying um, in my analysis of Nordic mythology uh, were usually very entrenched in a very like European understanding mm -hmm. of of, uh, of Nordic mythology. Well, this is and, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to uh, to ask because I've noticed as well that you know when it comes to anthropology anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are, are um, the more than happy to cross-reference other cultures, but when it comes to mixing it into, you know, uh, the Norse ones, maybe because it's closer to, to their heart and it's more precious, they don't like it when there's any sort of reference in that way from the outside. Whereas I, mm -hmm. I, I as well think it's uh, it's very important to be able to cross-reference because at the end of the day, we're all human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, and that's 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 a uh, you know an entrenched problem in European anthropology and our, the studies of our own histories is that we you know, we we're still uh, impressed by the 19th century uh, idea that that our European cultures are uh, the right ones. They they are the more developed ones. They're more elevated than other other cultures out there. And other cultures are studied as a curiosity more than a, than than a reality. Like that's that's what you get with the, you know the the uh, the, the early anthropologists, right? They're like, oh, let's go to Africa and see what's happening down there, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, right? And and that's a, that still that still exists, um, and and it's quite often I would say it's it's an unconscious bias more than it's something that people are like look willingly buying into at this point mm -hmm. um it just comes from the fact that that we have a long history of of, of uh, you know perceiving ourselves as 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 better than other uh, cultures and and as you say at the end of the day we're all human and i don't think that we are i was doing my usual <laughs> thing of uh scrolling through facebook and you know the, the facebook groups as I, as I like to dwell sometimes and i saw that um Somebody compared sort of like the Vikings to a lot of the Polynesian islands, and that seemed to piss off a lot of people. But it made sense 
in my mind, why mm-hmm. you make those comparisons. But there seem to be a lot of people who got really tetchy and upset about this idea of anything, I guess, almost yeah. being compared to the Vikings. So, yeah, the, what, let me just attach a comment to that. I actually do that when I teach Vikings. I say, look, uh, if, if there's, you know, cultures you want to compare with, Look at the maritime cultures in in the uh, the Pacific Ocean. In many ways, they 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 have been developing and 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 uh, evolving in, in in similar ways as as that culture that existed in Scandinavia. Well, actually, far into the medieval period too. It's actually interesting on that. I think that um, I think we might have talked about this before, and uh, but the the, I, the idea of of uh, you know, you see, like uh, on the little uh, the plates and so with the the warriors that people say are uh, berserkers, and they they look like they're doing a dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have. Oh, well, I've always thought that maybe the the whole thing of going berserk was actually almost like doing a hacker. Yeah, um, yeah, it could be because it's, it's it's a brilliant warm up, isn't it, before a fight? So and, probably had a lot more in common than people had to give him credit absolutely. for. Absolutely, and yeah. as a rugby player, I can also say it was fucking terrifying as well. It is a scary yeah. thing to to see as well. You know, it has its effect. It kind of does, you know, it draws you in and th- makes you think, "Fucking hell, what's this?" Well, you know, Dan. Next time, next time we have a cave rave, we will have to try and do a berserk dance around the fire. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I've got a, a soft cushioned helmet on. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Wanna, I don't uh, you, will, you will have to. You you will have to pull this off once I'm. Uh, you know, over there. Like I, we'll I have to practice a bit. I think. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So, Mateus, like a like a dance troupe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mateus, one thing I was just about to ask you. Obviously, you said you looked at comparisons to other cultures. Is there any that you have to mind that you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, so 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 what I specifically have worked with, like in my PhD uh, studies, is uh, how uh, Nordic mythology comes together with the landscape in Iceland and actually says things about volcanism. Mm-hmm. So volcanic eruptions and and other experiences Icelanders might have had with geology, and this is where it gets really. Um, uh, controversial actually in a, in a scholarly context for, for the study of Norse mythology. It's not controversial if you go to uh, indigenous cultures elsewhere in the world. Um, that's again this perspective, the difference between like like our culture and their culture, um, I would say at least, like the implicit bias. Uh, what I've found is that when I talk to archaeologists and anthropologists uh, of pretty much any any culture, so to speak, that in, regardless of what culture they're, t- they're studying, they have no problem um, accepting uh, my perspective on Norse mythology and how it intersects with geology. Uh, but when I talk to my my own peers, they're like, "What the fuck are you doing, man?" <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's something that has to do with my my fields specifically. But um, but yeah, so so what you can see basically is that. You know, across the world, uh, it looks like human beings have always generated stories about um, the landscape around them. This is—I don't—I don't think that that there's anything particularly, you know, special in saying that. Like, that that makes a lot of sense, even intuitively, right? Um, but uh, if there's a feature of the landscape that's uh, more dominant, it will usually have an imprint in the stories that are told. And you can probably go to English folktales and see, oh, wait a minute, 
there's a lot of like you know moors and uh, marshes and uh, rolling hills and those kinds of things and that's the same if you go to my home country Denmark there's a lot of uh, marshes and uh, creatures li- uh, from the swamp and that kind of stuff in Iceland of course there's a lot of um, uh, giants throwing rocks at you there's a lot of um, other things that have to do with like volcanoes specifically. And so that's what I was looking for in the mythology and seeing like, are there any examples like in, in, in a story that you find in Snorri Sturluson's Etta, for instance, that could be interpreted in context of, of, uh, of, of volcanic eruptions. And lo and behold, there's actually a lot. Um, the, the, the story about Thor's duel with Krungnir, this giant that's made of a, of stone and rock and so on, basically explodes, <laughs> should perhaps come to mind if you're familiar with it, right? That's a that's an example of uh, a, what I would say a volcanic myth that we have in in Snorri's Sturluson set down. I don't think I've ever heard that one. Can you give us a quick rundown of it? So the, the the story is that uh, uh, Odin is actually out like riding his little horse, and then he 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 happens to like just like uh, go into Jörsenheimer, the the world of the giants, right? And then there he encounters Hrungnir, uh, who's seeing him riding up there in the sky, and he's like, "What what is it? What's going on up there?" And then Odin is basically being a jerk. He's like, uh, <laughs> he's, he insults Hrungnir, and Hrungnir is in, well, well, fuck you, I'm going to kill you. And so they race, uh, um, uh, and um, and uh, Hrungnir actually uh, ends up uh, running, uh, uh, or riding his horse faster than, than, than Odin, which is a curious little thing, and then ends up in, in uh, Ausgader, in the home of the gods. And then he gets really drunk and starts threatening everybody. He says he'll bury uh, Ausgader or Valhut, I can't remember, one of them. Um, I think it's Ausgader. He'll bury it. This is an important detail, right? Bury it in deep below the the, the earth, right? That's like the first threat of volcanism right there. Mm-hmm. Um, he also says that he'll uh, take... I think he'll take Valhut and bring it back to to Jotunheimer, and and he'll he'll take Freya and Sif as well. It's like these two deities, female deities that are associated closely with fertility, and that's one of the things that volcanism also threatens. You know, the fertility of the fields and 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 your life in general, right? So also your access to resources. So. Um, the next level is then that Thor shows up and then uh, he's going to kill him, but 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 Kronia uh, uh, reminds him, oh, you can't kill me here because that that would sully the sanctuary of Ausgader. So so they settled this uh, 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 they set this duel to happen in a place called Grjotunagader, which means uh, the the farm land of. Uh, of rubble or, or something like that. And that there's all these like hints that this happens in, in an area that, um, that is like very rocky terrain. We're told about, uh, Hrunia himself, that he has a head and a heart of stone. Um, he has, he uses a flint stone as a weapon and also has a stone shield. I've, I've heard that he has, um, a nine pointed heart. Um, a- yeah. There's there's that thing that uh, 
I think Snorri Sturluson uh, says something about how his heart is pointy and it, it, it represents some kind of symbol or something like that. Yeah, because I've heard people it. talk about saying it could be what we call the Valkanet and obviously yes. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, I mean, that it's sort of like an offhanded remark that's, that Snorri makes that has then sort of produced his own life in, in scholarship where scholars have been like, oh, that's got to be like this symbol over here or that symbol over there and so on. And then it's like precipitated into popular culture as well. And, um, and it's yeah. hotly, di- hotly debated in Facebook groups. <laughs> yes, and that's that's where I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> so, so what happens next? We've got a, a stone giant. Yeah, so the next thing that happens is that, well, the, 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 all the other giants, they're like, well, Hrongnir uh, 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 should, of course, have a helper. So let's, uh, let's do some magic and create this giant clay figure. Um, the problem with him is that they couldn't find a heart that was big enough. So they just gave him the heart of a mare, a female horse. And, uh, and that was a bad decision, it turns out. So what happens next is that uh, they're, they're set to meet Gjotunagartha uh, and 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 fight, and uh, uh, Thor sends Fjalvi uh, ahead of him, his his you know, supposedly human servant. Not sure he's actually human, but that's another discussion. Um, Fjalvi goes there and he tells. Um, um, that Thor is going to come from underneath you. He's going to come at the lower route under the ground. And that's like an interesting detail here because, you know, Hrungnir uh, is like, well, then I'm going to stand on my shield, of course. Um, and this then tricks him, right? And you can see that as a, uh, you know, this giant being stupid. But you could also see this as a logical thing because uh, the next thing that happens is that Thor shows up in uh, a cloud with like thunder and lightning, and then he throws his hammer at him, and Hrungnir uh, throws his uh, flint uh, weapon at him, and they meet in the middle. Basically, the hammer goes straight through it. The the the, the flint object is uh, spread all across the world. Uh, it, it blows into uh, tiny pieces. One of them hits uh, Thor right in the head. Um, the hammer goes through the, uh, the flint weapon and straight through Hrungnir's uh, head as well and crushes his head. And it's sort of like, you know, the description is very, like, explosive. Um, and in the meantime, the giant clay uh, figure, Mokkur Kaldi, um, uh, which means something like misty calf or, or misty caber. Um, and that's a, the, the calf thing is interesting too, because calf in, um, in Scandinavian is, uh, also, that's also a verb to calf. Um, and that's what uh, glaciers do. Uh, so there's a reference to uh, glacial and that's when glaciers, uh, shed ice that, that then they calf in okay. Scandinavian. So, so there's something. There's a reference to 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 glacial stuff here. Or there can be at least. Uh, there's the the mist as well, uh, and then there's this giant clay figure who's who wets himself is what the story says. Like he pees his pants because he gets freaked out by this uh, this uh, explosion. I here. mean, it's it's not an overreaction if you've just seen a hammer go through your mate's head. It's kind of. Right? I'm not gonna lie. I'd probably do the same thing. 
Right. <laughs> so let's dig into the geology of all of this. So we have that reference to glacier, uh, a possible reference to glacier. It doesn't have to be a reference to glacier, but I would say that it is. We have a reference to mist as well. That's a very typical uh, part of uh, any volcanic activity. You have uh, uh, fumes, gases, smoke, right? You have a, uh, a, a giant clay being that is wetting itself. Uh, that uh, right there could be a glacial burst, which is very common in Iceland. Jökulhlaup, uh, it's called in Icelandic, basically a glacial run, where you have um, minor volcanic um, eruptions or little burps, basically, of, of, uh, of magma that comes up underneath a glacier. Most of these volcanoes are covered in glaciers, right? Um, and then you have uh, meltwater and some rocks, gravel, uh, clay coming out from underneath the glacier. That's very, very common, um, especially in the southeastern uh, part of Iceland where you have the... Um, that's also where you get the giant fissure swarms in the Katla system, for instance. Katla as a volcano is also very interesting because, you know, Katla is a name of a witch too, and there's like witchcraft attached to it. There's a lot of funky things going on here. Aside from that, of course, you have the explosive aspects of an eruption. You have uh, ejecta like uh, rocks being thrown about and all that stuff. And you might have a reference to uh, fredomagmatic combustion in the good guy Thor showing up in a cloud of lightning. This happens. Go if you Google Eyjafjallajökull, um, the volcanic eruption that disrupted uh, our lives back in 2010. Okay, yeah, um, I remember that one. Right. So if you Google the imagery, if you know you can manage to spell that long weird name, <laughs> yeah. Um, then then you'll see. I think, I think just um, just 2010 Icelandic volcano yeah, will will probably yeah. bring it up. Absolutely. Then you'll see fredomagmatic combustion. So what happens is that once once you have magma coming up underneath uh, in a in a more explosive eruption than these like small burps that I was talking about before that cr create the glacial bursts, but like once they come up like they did back then, what you have is a much more explosive reaction in uh, the combination of uh, of uh, of ice and magma, and that actually uh, then adds to a uh, general uh, um, uh, more, more, more uh, particle tension in the, uh, the clouds. And that's where you get lightning. That's actually probably why Thor is still connected to lightning in the Icelandic material in general. Iceland doesn't get a lot of lightning uh, from, you know, just the sky. Um, so it's probably more, more actually that his, uh, his, his thunder and lightning is connected to vol volcano and, um, you know, the, the, the uh, ash clouds to come out. Uh, from it certainly glaciers. makes it more dramatic as well. Absolutely, right? <laughs> so, so like all of these little components in this duel actually hint at these geological processes that you can observe if you're seeing volcanic eruptions. And mind you, there's not a, a generation in Iceland that has not experienced volcanic eruptions. Um, there, up until Snorri Sturluson wrote at the, in 1220, there had been 200 and something, as far as I remember, uh, volcanic eruptions since 
uh, humans came to the island in and of itself. So, you know, they were very well familiar with it uh, in different capacities. Most of the eruptions are not necessarily a problem in Iceland, right? Just like uh, Holochrain uh, that happened, I think, the year after uh, or a couple of years after Eyjafjallajökull. Uh, um, it was just you know, uh, a, a small fissure that opened and bu- burst out a bunch of lava in the middle of the country where nobody lived. And you'd have to like fly out there with a helicopter that would, you know, charge you a bunch of money uh, to do that, uh, to see it. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, that's a lot of uh, eruptions. Um, of course, you know, when you get them in AF you could it would be closer to uh, people's settlements and where people were living. It would definitely be dramatic. It might not hurt you. It might not be a problem to you, but it would definitely be something you would remember. Oh, for sure. It'd still be terrifying. Exactly. (laughs) Even if a volcano erupted, I don't know, like 10 miles away from me and it's going to have no effect on me at all. I'm still Mm. looking at that thinking, that's fucking scary. That's, you know, it's, it's just molten rock. Like it is a terrifying thing. Like I imagine it's even just seeing the explosions on TV has an impact. So to see it in person, it must be even more impactful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think as well, just to add to that, when I was going through a load of, um, uh, a load of uh, videos of, of uh, in the Welsh library of, of um, lots of old guys telling stories, uh, they were saying how, like when they were young, how much quieter the world was as well. So I imagine that, that that sort of thing is obviously, it's probably going to be the loudest thing you'll ever hear in your mm-hmm. life as well. Absolutely. Probably still is now. Yeah. Yeah. No. And uh, I think actually one of the loudest sounds that have ever been heard on the planet in human history, at least, uh, was the uh, Krakatau uh, eruption um, in Indonesia. I can't remember when it was, uh, when it happened. Um, uh, like it's, it's in the 19th century. I think uh, 1880 something comes to mind. I'm not entirely sure, but that that eruption was incredibly loud. I just had this mental image of everyone that's close by their eardrums just exploding. <laughs> probably, I probably think that actually happened. Yes. Well, that's there was, there was the explosion at the where was it? Oh, I can't remember the country. It was a couple of it was a couple of months ago, six months ago, in the docks where they'd been storing something they probably shouldn't have been storing. Now, even just the footage of that, the YouTube videos of that were were absolutely terrifying, and you could almost feel the shock waves from that alone so i have no idea what it would be like in in real life on even a bigger scale with it being a volcanic eruption yeah yeah no that's that that's true and um yeah that was that uh that was in lebanon the um that ship that exploded or it wasn't it like a russian ship i was a sh- i think it was a shipping port they 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 stored something that they'd found on a ship offshore they'd been abandoned mm. i think and stored it in the port and for some reason not got rid of it and it's just been sat there and whatever happened happened and it was terrifying yeah and just to give you an example of how you know pre-industrial cultures or or on the verge of industrial cultures have uh have reacted to this so in 1783 um the uh, the lakakika uh, eruption happened in iceland 
And this was like, you know, right before machines became a thing in, in our general lives, right? Um, uh, it, it, that volcanic eruption um, lasted for about eight or nine months. It mostly spewed gases as, as like the main nuisance to Europeans. The Icelanders had a different experience of it. But those gases uh, may, had uh, most people in, the, in, the, in Britain uh, thinking that the end was near. Um, you, you can go back and 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 uh, read the literature written at the time, and they're referencing like the sun as some some like red uh, uh, the demonic being on the sky, and you know there were uh, newspaper articles about how people thought the end was near and all that stuff, because uh, uh, um, Lakagika was emitting sulfuric uh, gases into the atmosphere that was coloring the sky for the European mainland, and also um, actually uh, uh, killing off people as well. The, the gases were so extreme that they, uh, I think it's an estimated 100,000 people that died in the UK and France and Germany in particular. Wow. Yeah. That's just the gases, right? Mm-hmm. Now go to, go to Iceland and uh, in certain parishes, you had 25% of the population uh, dying of famine. Uh, because the uh, um, what what happened was that um, uh, the uh, the gases or the the uh, the um, sorry the the ejecta the tephra uh, that would be the, the the ashes from the volcano uh, deposited um, over you know the grazing areas for the sheep in particular and I can't remember exactly the, the chemical compound but there was a chemical compound in it that um, killed off the sheep. So the people died of famine. It's got to be somewhere strong to kill off a sheep because they are hearty. Like, <laughs> sheep, sheep can really take a beating. I mean, those things survive everywhere. You see them on the side of cliffs. I mean, sheep, yeah, they're one of the toughest animals about. So to uh, kill off a bunch of them, you know, it's got to be pretty lethal. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an estimated 20%, or maybe not, uh, maybe it's a, not just an estimate, it's a, it's a factual uh, number that we have. We have pretty good uh, um, numbers for, uh, for the volcanic eruptions in Iceland in this period of time, because they, uh, they, 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 they would uh, tally their losses, and then they would send these uh, lists along with descriptions of the volcanic uh, eruptions. That's called the Eldrit, uh, fire writing. Um, they, they would write about them um, and send them to the Danish king uh, to let him know just exactly how obnoxious this is and that they wanted, uh, um, you know, insurance money. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was a there was a mandate on the king to uh, to uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, help them uh, out um, materially. Uh, under these uh, circumstances when they have been affected by volcanic eruptions because he was in principle and like it's his land. Right. So, so he was also responsible for the volcanic eruptions. <laughs> I mean, just, just then when you said how the, the eruption had lasted for eight to nine months. Um, so it's not a quick, it's not a quick thing. It's not something that happens. And then it, you know, you miss it. It's something that's going to have a, long-lasting effect on people's lives so especially back you know a thousand years ago i'm sure it would be something that would be told and then retold and then passed on through family and word of mouth and made into stories i guess and you know entertaining little little sagas for around the around the campfire 
And that's that's why my part of my theory is that uh, a portion of the story of Ragnarok in the poem Verlospal is inspired by a major volcanic eruption that happened in Iceland in 934 to 40. It's a six-year-long eruption called Eldgjau. And this was an eruption that was similar to Lakakika in the same system. I mean, six um, years is a long time as well. Just to, to put that into perspective, you know, we've been going through the COVID crisis for what, nine, ten months, and I'm moaning like a little bitch about it. So yeah, if yeah. it was if this went on for another five years, like I feel like I would, you know, that is something that this will get passed down through generations anyway. But imagine if it went on for another you know five years. That is a story that will be told for forevermore. So it makes sense that something that like that would be created into something like Ragnarok. Exactly. And uh and especially when you think about the features of it. So uh the estimate of uh of certain components of the eruption is for instance that uh they uh, Elkiao spewed out fire columns that was about a mile high it's like a mile into the sky it was just like fire um <laughs> that would have been visible from large parts of the populated or the densely populated areas of Iceland um there I mean, say especially uh, especially back then when you have you have no, there's no, you can't just go on Google and be like, what the fuck's this fire thing in the sky? <laughs> and then somebody says, somebody kind of explains, you know, there's a, there's a, an eruption and this is what it is. Don't worry about it. They, you know, they're seeing something that's so unusual that you would mm-hmm. have to kind of just make up your own explanation for it, I guess. Done. I love the, the idea of you just put it in on Google and you get an answer. Oh, it's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's where I get most of my knowledge is just a quick Google. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just a volcanic eruption. Okay, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthias, one thing that came to mind, could that be maybe seen as being like Surtur's sword coming up out of the ground? That's like almost verbatim what I wrote in my dissertation. Like, that's Surtur's sword. I must be learning something. Yeah. No, so, so that's the thing, and and, and there are uh, these other components, like very poetic components, of of this what I call the volcanic sequence in 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 Ragnarok that starts around uh, um, a stanza forty seven and then ends with fifty two in uh, the standardized version of of, of the poem Bertelsvall or the prophecy of the Seeress. Um, th- th- it starts with like tremors and and like these these typical hints that you get. So, you know, uh, the lead up to a volcanic eruption can be really long. It can be several months, uh, maybe even years sometimes where you get tremors and, um, minor earthquakes, uh, earthquake swarms are very typical in that. And we get like these poetic hints with like the dwarves howling in front of their stone doors, you know, these beings that live in the rocks, right. Um, they, they start making noises, could that also, I was going to say, just explain with like Loki is tied, and that when the the poison hits him, he screams out and makes an earthquake. Like that, I guess that that would explain the lead up of it, kind of the having these little earthquakes before the major one or the major event of Ragnarok happens. Yeah, so so that's not part of the poem itself, but that's that's sort of like an after rationalization that we see in other contexts in Nordic mythology. But he is also involved. I mean, he comes with uh, on the ship Nagelfar in in the midst of all of this, he, uh, he, and he's sailing the ship uh, with Bileister. B 
belaster means the run the one who rushes over dwellings. Um, it's like a really curious figure that we don't really know much about. Like, um, but but it's just an interesting name, right? The, the one who rushes over dwellings that that could be a reference to pyroclastic flows or lava flows or you know also glacial bursts. They they will destroy a, a settlement um, if it's placed in the wrong wrong place, right? Mm -hmm. um aside from that we have we have a bunch of other like cues that can be tied into geological uh components of 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 major volcanic uh, uh, eruptions and it ends so to speak this this sequence ends with uh surter then coming out of the ground with his flaming sword and all that stuff and taking down the sky and uh, keep in mind that this uh, elkiao eruption is probably recorded as as the thing that disrupted uh, farming in China during this period. Um, there are uh, volcanologists, um, Chinese volcanologists, and uh, and others as well, who have uh, suggested that the the origin of the famines those years in China was that eruption. It went hemispheric and covered the northern hemisphere in a, a cloud that uh, obstructed the sun for a while uh, that would disrupt um you know you know growth of, of plants and you know farming and so on uh, on the, the, the northern hemisphere i mean even if that happened today and google told me i was all right i wouldn't believe it <laughs> <laughs> i'd still be like nope <laughs> i'm looking the sun's gone that's it <laughs> And that's uh, that's the thing, right? So, so what you basically what happens nowadays? Speaking of uh, you know these kinds of things, how 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 fucked would we be if that happened today? We'd be pretty fucked. Um, but our governments, in general, if they're responsible enough, they they store grain and 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 other supplies uh, for those kinds of events because they know that they can happen. Um, these people back then, right? They they were uh, dependent on their storage uh, for a single season. Uh, th this means that the importance of keeping the story alive is is uh, is much uh, more important, so to speak. Uh, you 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 would need to to find a way to 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 bring that message through the ages, right? And one of the ways that we can see that uh, peoples across the planet have been doing that is by condensing knowledge in different ways. And if we go back to uh, um, uh, Neil Price's theory about the year 537 or 536, sorry, um, and its impact on Scandinavia, what we can see in Scandinavia is that uh, in certain places in, in Sweden and Norway, between 50 and 75% of, of the, the, the villages disappear around this time. And this is the great dust veil event um, that Neil Price has, has been talking about. A volcanic eruption, possibly somewhere in the southern hemisphere, maybe Ecuador, um, basically disrupts uh, um, agricultural pursuits on the northern hemisphere for about three years. That's what is known in Nordic mythology as the Fimbulvetter, the great winter that lasts for three years. Um, and it's pro it's likely that that um, that what we see with the Ragnarok myth is that it's basically compounding several of these 
like experiences of like major catastrophes that was so disrupting to life that you know it for for a majority of the population it ended life and for the remaining population it it compelled them to one keep the memory alive and two uh, a, a figure out ways to to restructure life and 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 exist in the future, right? That's really what it's about, right? I mean, even, without making too many comparisons to to COVID, it's we, you know we've had this little it's not catastrophic, but you know a pandemic that, that's happened, and it's literally all that everybody's spoken about for the last ten months. So you can imagine if something like that happened, it would truly just be the same it would just be this, you would speak about it nonstop and it would over time evolve and change and become, become a, once maybe you got far enough away from the event itself, it might become a story to then remind people of what happened. Yeah. That's the, that's the general theory that, that, um, so, so, uh, there's a different things that work when it comes to like oral cultures. Um, you, you, you compound images that look alike, right? Uh, so they might have been different events, uh, but they're compounded in the same uh, um, story, basically, or the same, uh, the same image in a story. Um, uh, because over time you, you, you like, it's basically, you think about it in terms of like, you know, um, a memory uh, on a computer as well like the the the, the memory capacity uh, capacity of you know a culture that does not have writing um is is smaller than one that has writing uh, and again one that has writing in say like you know medieval iceland where you write everything down on cowskin the memory capacity of that is is less than the memory capacity of the society that exists now right um, because we have more ways to store knowledge, so so they had to economize, and that's how these these images of volcanic eruptions and stuff like that that they, they then become uh, focused in like poetry uh, with like this image of that particular disaster over here as like a giant that comes out of the ground with a flaming sword. So that's sort of like the the uh, uh, explanation for uh, for how how these uh, elements of, of the poem girl spout can, could be, you know, volcanic eruptions that they're talking about. And yeah, as you say, they, they, people would definitely be talking about that a lot, especially if it lasted six years. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it seems a bit strange that people would even give you any pushback on this idea at all. Yeah, so there there are some some issues with my theory as well. Like one of them is that you know that there's nothing to say that you, you you should just like take a poem like this and then connect it to a historical event and and also a particular uh, uh, place in uh, in Scandinavia. I mean, there, there's there are some aspects of the poem that I would say that you would definitely like. My from my theoretical perspective this poem is definitely composed in iceland in the the last half of the the 900s but you know even those two things that i say right there composed in iceland last half of 900s there's a bunch of scholars out there that will disagree with me on that uh for different reasons uh so that's like a a, a matter of of uh debating and and what what evidence do you believe uh, over over other evidence um you know, some would say that oh, this the, the Virtuspaw is composed in Norway, has nothing to do with Iceland. Um, others would say that um, yeah, it might even be 
uh, much younger and, and all of these things. So, so there's plenty of reasons that different scholars out there will find a reason to, to, to contest my theory here. Are you, are you the Graham Hancock of nodding mythology? <laughs> Is that, I don't mean that too offensively, but I feel like he has some pretty, pretty unique ideas on uh, Egypt and he gets a lot of pushback. Yeah, no, I think there, there are people who get more pushback than me. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I always find I always find it so wild how people seem, or other professors and scholars seem so uninterested in listening to new ideas. Well, so we, I, I, I will be guilty of that too sometimes. And the reason for that is that um, we have very rigorous processes for um, uh, you know producing knowledge and especially in a field like Nordic mythology because a field like Nordic mythology has existed for 500 years almost at this point as a scholarly field um, like the, the, the earliest scholars in sort of like in a modern sense dealing with this uh, have like started in the 1500s um, I mean if you if you w- want to you can even say that our our f- field of knowledge as a as a as a subject of research has existed since Nordstudlson at least, right? so that brings it back eight hundred years. And there's been a lot of crackpots in the mix over those uh, centuries, right? Um, you know, you could even say that Nordstudlson himself is a crackpot <laughs> in some <laughs> regards. Like he mixes in a lot of Christian uh, Christian mythology and theology uh, in his interpretation of Nordic mythology. Uh, in the in the 15, 1600s, you have Swedish scholars claiming that um, Odin is really God, uh, and and that Sweden was the original language spoken in, in the Garden of Eden, and that kind of crap. And then you have like it, 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 then it gets wild from there. You know, you you have uh, German crackpots in the 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, uh, claiming that, you know, Scandinavians originated from uh, the original Atlantis and it's like buried somewhere underneath the North Pole and and all that stuff. And then you have Nazis and then you have a, a bunch of other uh, uh, crank uh, ideas be, being mixed into all of this. So, you know, there's, there's good reason as a scholar of Nordic mythology to be cautious about things that, you know, divert from the very boring uh, interpretations of Nordic mythology that we also find out there that that you know nobody will contest because they're just like shrug whatever okay that sounds fine. <laughs> I, I I understand that, but I mean I'm just a moron on a podcast, so don't hold me to anything. But I, the the, the your, your theory doesn't seem wild. It doesn't seem outlandish. It seems pretty plausible. Yeah, you know I'm not trained in this. But it doesn't seem unreasonable by any stretch. No, so 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 what we've also had in in the development of the field of like interpretation of mythology and folklore is that uh, go back to the 19th century, we had the Oxford School, and the Oxford School is um, is is basically generally just interpreting any myth as as sort of like a story about uh, natural processes. And that's how you 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 wind up with all these fucking sun gods everywhere. Uh, Zeus is a sun god. Uh, Apollo is a sun god. Uh, uh, you know, depending on the flavor, Balder in Nordic mythology is a sun god, and so on and so on and so on. Right? And you know uh, what happened was that these 
scholars back then, they they did something legitimate. They interpreted certain myths in context of an understanding of natural processes, but then they took it too far. And, you know, the this really came to a, a head when uh, uh, Max Müller, uh, one of the primary scholars of, of interpreting everything in context of like natural processes, uh, was himself interpreted in context of natural processes using his own methods. I can't remember which scholar did it, but you can find it on the internet. Like there's a mm. great, uh, <laughs> there's a great interpretation of this scholar as a sun god himself. <laughs> and so that sort of like showed everybody, like, okay, this has gone too far. And what happened next? And this, you you know, scholarship is also subject to trends and fads and ideas and what happened next is of course the complete rejection of of all of this and then um it, then we get uh, other scholars like Emile Duquesne and uh, and like the French school that starts interpreting the myths uh, pretty much primarily only as like social processes so then you get sort of like you know a a, a, a like a single focus on that alone and we're still sort of there with that like if you look broadly at like uh, any field of mythology and folklore, it's very interesting in the idea that every myth uh, basically just reflects some kind of social problem. Um, then you also have a little bit of psychology in the mix and like, you know, any, any elongated object is a phallus. That's like Freud <laughs> and so on. Already, right? so, so, already, you know, 12 year old boy. Yeah, no, it's like, that's a penis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think not even a 12-year-old boy, I think any grown adult male, as soon as they get a pen and a piece of paper, is there's only one <laughs> thing that's getting drawn. Hey, speak for yourself, man. <laughs> I'm going to jump in there and just say that I, I try to be as careful as I can when I do designs to take a step back from it and like, okay, does it look like a dick? Before I tattoo it, like... Just do a quick, quick test. Well, I, it, that's something you've got to, because you can't rub that off after. That's a one-time, a one-time deal. You can with the potato peeler, but that's something else. You know, that's not legit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there a guy in Australia who uh, uh, sued some some somebody for tattooing a dick on his face? I'm I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I'm gonna have to look that up. I mean. Yeah, I would do a lot worse than sue somebody if they tattooed a dick on my face. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a pretty chill response. <laughs> no, but it's it's one of those things where you you know, like you you can get really into a design and think like, yeah, this is wonderful, and then uh, and then you take a step back from it, like that looks like a vagina. Okay, all right, let's do some changes <laughs> here and here, and then you know. So apparently, a man was jailed for paying to have it done to his drunk friend. Oh shit. So maybe that's that's probably where the lawsuit came in was I mean that's a shitty friend. You know, like It's a shitty tattooist. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I didn't even think of it from that point. I think the shitty people are around in that story because yeah. you, know, you see you can't tattoo somebody who's that drunk. It's not really a joke anymore. <laughs> I mean, maybe it'd have been funny if they'd have like taken him to the tattoo place and then the tattooist had drawn it on him permanent marker and then let him believe for maybe a couple of hours that it was real. Like, that'd be funny. <laughs> but not to actually do it. Oh, that's horrible. There's some yeah. uh, some mean people about. So just to uh, wildly change the subject for a minute, um, and I'm really not uh, very uh, very confident in uh, in my statement of this, but am I right in saying that Tacitus wrote that 
he said that the Celts uh, believed in sort of deities in the way that the Romans did. Uh, and then the, the he wrote that the Germanic tribes, they believed more in seeing natural, uh, like things that they could see is what they, they thought were more real and what they had more respect for in that sense. I think what you might be be thinking of here is uh, Tacitus writing that the 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 Germanic peoples don't go into temples and that they worship in like groves and like in 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 the in nature. Okay. Um, uh, and and the the other thing with the with the Celtic uh, uh, peoples that might be in Agricola. Um, so, so, so in a different text, right? We have uh, um, what's Agricola, I think it's called, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, or is it Annales? Uh, uh, now I'm now I'm messing up. Like I can't remember what this dude <laughs> was writing. But <laughs> um, so, so, well, he he does talk about the Britons, right? In in diff- different contexts, at least. But I'm not. I don't think he does in in Germania. Uh, that's not where he's writing what they believe in, but he does write that the Germanic people they worship in groves and all that stuff, um, which is uh, which looks to be pretty consistent with what actually happened. Uh, they would, uh, I mean, that at least uh, the archaeological evidence shows that a lot of ritualistic activity happened in marshlands and lakes and 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 such. This this is but. You know, well documented throughout Northern Europe, um, and then later on we have the introduction of of temple complexes. I would call them. M- plenty of my peers are more cautious and call them cult houses instead. But dude, it's a temple. Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, so that's that's more introduced, like from from like the five hundreds. That's where it becomes very important. At least it does look like there are some some in existence already in the two hundreds and perhaps even before then. Uh, but but there, it looks like there's more ritual activities in groves and such. So uh, he's probably right, uh, but I don't think that that necessarily means that that they would um, that they, that they would just like like ignore if if you can say that ignore sort of like human aspect of 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 their understanding of their deities. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, and there are there are you know a few examples of uh, very early um, carved idols. They were probably placed in groves, and 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 yeah. So so I think it's 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 more mixed than uh, than what he's saying, though. Yeah, well, obviously, there's you know because uh, you know with um, I was just quoting what I had what I'd picked up uh, on that because, you know, obviously there's the idea that, you know, whether, whether it's true or not, that they said that the, the Druids would also do stuff in groves as well. Yeah. So but the, the idea of temple though, like, you know, what is a temple is, um, cause we are, you know, obviously if you go to someone in the street now and you say, what's a temple, they're going to say, it basically looks like a, like a bank, mm-hmm. um, that sort of a building, but temples can look like lots of different things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some some churches over here in America look like malls. It's really weird. Um, and that's that's just to, to somebody who who who's lived most of his life in a in a country like 
a thousand year old churches that that's just i don't get it <laughs> like I don't, how can these two things come together but they can here right and you know that, that's that's how it usually works right there uh, um the the places of worship uh take shape after the type of society that exists around them right um and uh, but but i uh, i want to attest one thing like so what i was talking about before with like this distinction between like that that you find in european scholarship on on religion and mythology and all these things uh between europe europe and the rest of the world pretty much right that also comes into this interpretation of like early germanic religion and and places of worship and what they perceived as deities and all that stuff and in in the 19th century, you have scholarship basically assuming that anything that's not Christianity or Islam um, is some kind of uh, interpretation of of nature instead, right? Um, that is is of course a very reductive way of seeing seeing any religion because even even those religions that might actually be very nature oriented in different ways uh, are are also incredibly socially oriented. These two things, you know, for those kinds of societies would not be separate. It's also part of my, my, uh, my argument when it comes to Nordic mythology and these volcanic interpretations. Um, actually, my, my overall argument is that the volcanism in Iceland was a major decisive factor for the type of society that developed in early Iceland. Um, what we're basically seeing are social structures that are born from volcanic eruptions um, because you get an entirely different social structure in a country where you are so competitive about resources as you will be in an Arctic island or subarctic island that is barraged by cold winds and snow storms and ice and then also volcanic eruptions. And we can actually go to other uh, people's, um, both uh, uh, ancient peoples and more recent peoples around the world and see that there are similar similar uh, things at play. Go to Hawaii and you will see that social structures, uh, pre-colonization, um, mythology and so on, was also very centered around volcanoes. You can find that in this in Papua New Guinea as well. Um, go to New Zealand, the Maori culture. We have different uh, clans uh, basically tracing their ancestry to volcanoes. <laughs> they have stories about how uh, fire came to the islands and so on, um, how they migrated from, from other places in the Pacific. I mean, it makes and, it does make sense why it would play such a big, big part. Because, I mean, I've never seen a volcano close, but I imagine it's... It's an amazing thing to see, even even now. You know, I have a very basic understanding of what a volcano is, but with no understanding at all, it it's it is a very magical thing. You can see why these tales and stories and and everything could come from that. Yeah, and and a great example of this is also, I think, is Tarawera uh, eruption in eighteen eighty eight. Uh, was interpreted by uh, this is New Zealand. Uh, was interpreted by a, um, a a a chieftain, I think he was, um, as as a punishment from uh, uh, for a, a, a punishment on on the people because the younger generation had started to fall to the British ways. 
um, like drinking and smoking and those kinds of mm-hmm. things. So one thing that we also very often see is that people interpret uh, volcanic eruptions as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's probably because we some... it destroys everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, that, that it, it makes a lot of sense, right? We've done something wrong. Uh, now we need to mend our ways. And then what happens is that we find the thing that is socially most disruptive and then we look at that and say, ah, that's that's the thing, right? What is the socially most disruptive thing in 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 late nineteenth century New Zealand? Well, it's to to the indigenous people, it's the colonization, right? It's the presence of white people. It's it's what they're bringing to them, right? It's so almost it makes- just that human idea of karma as well. It's like if you do, even even today, if you do something wrong, and then something bad happens immediately after, you kind of have this feeling of, oh shit, did I did I cause that to happen? Because I was a bit of a dick. So it's that kind of same thing, you know. I wouldn't, I always wonder if there was if there's like some guy back in eight, nine hundred or whatever when, when you're saying about this this volcanic eruption, if he was doing something wrong, maybe he was cheating on his wife or something, and then uh looked out the window and the uh this fire <laughs> these big pool of fires coming out of the ground, it's like, oh fuck, she knows. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's yeah. That that, I, that that has definitely, I'm sure, happened at some point. I think about Pompeii. Like, I'm sure somebody woke up that morning and was like, "Holy shit, I fucked up." Uh, well, didn't didn't they catch one guy like having a wank? Was that have I? Is that a real thing? Yeah, right about it. Yeah, I think that, so. Yeah. Maybe he was like, "Oh fuck!" I mean, that was good. Whatever floats your boat, right? That's it. Yeah, volcanic eruption. I mean, he had a good time. So one thing I just want to attach to all of this, and that's sort of like my coup de grace here, and that is uh, in in Ecuador, uh, we have the archaeological remains of two cultures, uh, one pre-volcanic eruption, one after. Um, so in the Jamaquaque uh, Valley, or Jamaquaque Valley, I think it's called, uh, there is a this culture that existed there in uh, up until approximately ninety A.D. And this culture was a very peaceful culture in, in our sense of peaceful. They, they didn't wage a lot of war. They didn't, uh, and uh, they didn't, they, was, they weren't particularly diverse when it comes to resource extraction. So f- they farmed a couple of uh, um, uh, types of, um, I, I think it was like yams or, or grain or something like that. Um, a, couple of, a couple of types of, of uh, agricultural products, and that's really it. Um, not a lot more activity happened. Then there was a volcanic eruption that destroyed them. Um, but what we can see is that parts part of the culture moves to the coast, the coastal region of Ecuador, and exists there for about two two hundred and something years, and then comes back to that their original lands. And this is the really interesting thing because all of a sudden that culture is a steep warrior hierarchy and it is very aggressive they they raid their neighbors they have diversified when it comes to resource extraction by growing multiple crops and also hunting and gathering and a lot of other things so what this really looks like is that that uh culture um basically learned a lot from that volcanic eruption Mm-hmm. And for a couple of centuries, they also kept alive the memory of their original homeland that they went and repossessed once they felt that it was safe to do so, right? 
So what that tells us is that that culture, first of all, had a huge societal uh, reconfiguration thanks to a volcanic eruption. And two, that they managed to keep the memory of the volcanic eruption and its significance to their existence alive for so long. And then they could come back and resettle the, the old lands. And if we transpose that to Iceland, what we see is a culture that is not familiar with volcanic eruptions at all, coming from Scandinavia and the British Isles, getting into the island, settling there, and then experiencing the volcanic eruptions. And the next thing that happens, and this is what all the sagas are about, this is what pretty much all the literature is about, from, from up until uh, Iceland becomes in, uh, enrolled in the Danish Empire. Um, so, so after long after the they were taken over by Norway, um, uh, is a incredibly competitive culture. You know, pretty much everybody in the sagas is an asshole somewhere. You know, all they do is fuck each other over. All they do is squabble over resources, right? And that tells me that what we probably have here is a Scandinavian culture, primarily Scandinavian culture, uh, meets a primarily uh, Gaelic culture, in Iceland, and then we just like engage in fierce competition um, and and try to exterminate one another. And this is even this is even the foundational the story of uh, of Iceland, the story of Ingolf uh, Arnason, the first uh, successful settler to Iceland. The guy who came for him before him that's Hrafnafloki. Hrafnafloki basically gives Iceland its name. He says this is Iceland. And he did not mean that in a positive way because his settlement failed because of ice and the winter, right? His cattle died. He didn't collect enough feed. That's an environmental lesson for you right there. Make sure to collect enough feed. Then the next one who comes is, Art, uh, is Artnason, Ingolf Artnason, and his friend Jörleivar. And these two guys, they have very different uh, experiences with Iceland. Uh, Jörleivar has uh, uh, some Celtic slaves and um, they, first of all, they drift off course. They uh, are almost dying of dehydration out there in the water. They manage to come back into land. Uh, Jarlever realizes that he hasn't brought uh, enough cattle to, uh, uh, to, to plow the fields properly. So he puts his slaves to work at that along with the one oxen he has brought. But they get pissed off. The next thing that they do is that they kill the oxen and tell him that the bear killed the oxen. So they all go out to hunt the bear. He gives the slaves weapon. The slaves kill him, takes his uh, his stuff and his women. And this was a real fear for Icelanders for a very long time, that somebody would take your stuff and your women, because um, that would happen a lot. And and so what we're basically being told here is a story of group competitions between two ethnic groups and uh, also the lesson of like what you need to do uh, to avoid um, um, getting killed by your own slaves, uh, what you need to do in order to to plow the fields and make the land arable, and 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 make a, a proper homestead, and all of those things. Ingolver, on the other hand, does right, and he starts by bringing the gods because he's the first one who uses the. Um, the high seat pillars to take land. He's, he, he proclaims that he'll take land wherever the gods land. Right. So there's there's that component of religion to it as well. So it basically, looks like it, it, that that you know the the early life in Iceland was completely 
shaped by that environment and the resource scarcity that comes with the fact that it's a subarctic land and it's a volcanic land and that there are multiple ethnic groups competing over resources. So, yeah, those were my two cents on that. <laughs> well, there we mm. go. I mean, yeah, Do you think like, there was like a like a like a big population of uh, of gales there before before the Norse turned up then? I don't know uh, much about before, but it definitely looks like during the the, the period of settlement. The same time. That by the way uh, ends in nine, uh, according to Ari Frodi, at least in nine thirty, right? So. I would say that 9.30 might as well just be 9.34, which is when we have the Elkiao eruption. Um, that period of time does bring a lot of uh, gales there. Uh, we like It looks like the genetic split is 50-50 here between Scandinavians and, and people from the British Isles um, in the early, early settlement of Iceland, in the early period of Iceland in general. There's a lot of hints, especially in, in Erbikja saga, and the sagas that take place around Breidafjordur, um, you know, that, that area northwest of, of where Reykjavik is, a lot of them hint at uh, ethnic conflicts between uh, descendants of Scandinavians and descendants of, of Gaels. Um, so, so there is a considerable population there. And I doubt that, you know, the saga literature usually represents them as slaves. That's a very ideological perspective. I doubt that that was actually the case. I think what we were seeing were, you know, people from from different areas taking land, and then you have a competition over the land and the resources after that. Cool, yeah. Um, this has been fun. Let's let's start to travel. We've got a few questions from the the chat, Mateus. Um, if you want to keep them nice and short. So, uh, one question was: Have you your your thesis? Have you published it? Have you put it out there? Can people find it? Um, so I'm going to throw my publisher under the bus here. Um, there are a bunch of cunts. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, actually I was uh, supposed to publish my book on this uh, stuff in, in June. Um, and if you, if you Google, if you Google me, you will actually find, uh, the book, uh, the title is, uh, um, um, uh, what is it? myth and environment in early Iceland. Um, and you'll, you can find it on, on Google books already, but it ha- hasn't actually come out yet because, uh, the publishers are fucking around, uh, with COVID stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's out ish. <laughs> it's out ish. Yes. It's, I mean, it, it'll come out at some point, but, uh, but definitely not before May and probably not even before then. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Paul Reed asked if you've ever worked with Jackson Crawford, obviously I, I know the answer, but I assume other people other people don't yeah we used to be in the same department uh, right here at CU um, Jackson was uh, head of Nordic studies up until uh, last uh, yeah, May I think his appointment ended um, and now I'm head of Nordic studies so uh, he uh, he decided to go his own way <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did you decide to get into teaching um, well, I've, that's something that I've done since 2003, I think. Um, I started out as a, uh, a substitute teacher in elementary school 
And I was actually at the time also taking a, a, a education. So in Denmark, we have you know, these specific schools you go to to take education for uh, elementary and middle school. And I was I was doing that too. Uh, so so I have most of a um, like a general education for a teacher for elementary and middle school in my baggage as well. And um, yeah, it's always just been a thing. It's, it's probably because I, you know, rant so much. I'm, I'm good at it. <laughs> uh, la- last one, just before we wrap up. Um, it says, do, do we, so we'll ask us all, do we have any favorite meads? Um, Matthias, I know you're brewing your own, so let's start with you. Have you had a chance to try it or is there any that you recommend? I'm actually kind of scared to try them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust myself enough for this. You need a guinea no, pig. So, yeah, <laughs> I need a guinea pig. Um, uh, my favorite one, um, yeah. So there's a Danish brewer called Mjöldgård, which means a mead farm or something like that. Um, uh, this is a, the guy who uh, uh, who started the company uh, originally, I helped him out a little bit in the beginning. Um, helped, I helped him out, set him up in a in a secret basement underneath his shed outside. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that sounds for the prime place to make some good mead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I just helped to dig, dig the basement a little bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, this guy, he's a, he's a local Aarhus heathen in Denmark. Um, I've known forever. And uh, he was like just brewing mead for people. And then he was like, well, maybe I should turn this into a company. And then he did. And he used to make the most awesome uh, elderflower mead that I've ever tasted. Oh, it, was, nice. it, was like, it was amazing. Um, the company still exists, but it has changed hands. Um, the guy who owns it now is also a very solid dude. I haven't tasted the mead since though. It happened after I moved over Mm -hmm. here. Um, but, um, I am still sure that the quality is, is awesome. So if you get your hands on that, you should try it. Can I jump in there and, uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to add that like the mead that I got off you, Dan was, uh, was pretty awesome. There you go. That's a good guess. I enjoyed that one actually. Yeah. (laughs) And as well as that, um, so the ones that you can get on, uh, you know, the um, Horns of Odin on that, as well as that on um, More Mead from Cornwall. That, okay, they're yeah. They're pretty lovely. And also Avon Mel from Wales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been yeah. I've been drinking that for years. And for anyone out there that's listening, you, you know, you should always have a go at making some of your own as well because it's, it's part of the experience. <laughs> I mean, I had, an, I had an experience drinking your mead, Sean, so... Yeah. You know, well, that's the thing. I've I've got another sixty gallons of it waiting. You know that we we were gonna drink this year, around about last week or whenever. And mm-hmm. I guess that will that will I'll just I'll just hold it for next year. I guess. Yeah, I would say if people listeners have probably already heard that the last time Sean made mead, I had some and I ended up falling over and cracking my head open and getting thirteen <laughs> stitches in a Welsh cave. So it was yeah. uh, entertainment. You, you weren't alone though. I'm gonna reel off like the uh, the butcher's bill. So you cracked open your head. One of my friends tripped up and broke his wrist. Uh, a couple of others fell over and got concussion, and I fell over and chipped my elbow at the very end of the night as I was leaving as well. <laughs> that's that, that's amazing. This is like this is straight up out of Norse mythology. <laughs> exactly. The cave demands Apart from, blood. Thankfully, nobody died because I was the yeah. closest. 
Yes, I mean, usually somebody drowns in a in a, in a tub of mead or something like that. But, but still, this is this is like you guys had a real mythological experience right there. I think it's awesome. Well, you were saying how all of the stories get compiled, so that's what will happen next year, and we'll just put it all together into one. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my my favorite mead is obviously I've got to say the ones that we sell. It's they we we set. I think my favorite flavored one is the one we sell, which is a cherry and marzipan, which is so unusual, but it's probably one of the nicest tasting things I've ever had in my life. It's not particularly strong, um, and it's really sweet. You can only have a little bit of it, but it's so such a lovely flavor. So, so yeah, hopefully that answers that. Um, let's wrap this up. Sean, have you got anything you want to plug? Do you want to plug your podcast? Do you want to plug the company? Anything you want? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess I'll say that, um, yeah, I've started doing a podcast for uh, Northern Fire as well, and hopefully you guys can join me on that at some point. Ashamathus, we're going to be doing one on, on uh, well, to do with the rune challenge that I did over the summer soon, aren't we? The primary objective of that is more to interview um, artists and to do a bit of storytelling more than anything. Mm-hmm. And as well as uh, as that, you can um, you can find my stuff on uh on Sacred Knots uh, on Instagram and Facebook and Northern Fire on, on the same platforms as well. Perfect. Matthias, what about you? Yeah, well, you can always find me on Instagram under my name, Matthias Nordvig. Um, um, you can find um, my website, the Nordic Mythology Channel, um, on nordicmythologychannel.com. And most recently, we just changed the name of the Nordic Mythology Channel uh, Facebook page to the Nordic Mythology Podcast um, because we are we are merging brands here. So, uh, <laughs> so you can find uh, my old uh, Nordic Mythology Channel as the Nordic Mythology Podcast on Facebook. There we go. Absolutely, uh, that's probably worth mentioning. We you know we are in the in the process of getting a producer, so. Please bear with us over the next couple of weeks. You know, things might change a little bit, but it's all for the it's all for the better. Things are gonna hopefully get more regular and just be better timed and hopefully just better all around. Um so anybody that wants to find me, just find me at Daniel underscore Farrand one on Instagram or obviously through the business at Horns of Odin. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a five-star review and a positive rating. And obviously you can find us on Patreon at just Patreon forward slash Nordic Mythology Podcast where you can watch the episodes a month before they go onto YouTube. We also do a bonus episode on there um, and some live Q&As as well. So, perfect. Thank you very much. It was an exciting start to it with uh, it dropping off, but Sean, you made it in the end. Oh, I feel terrible for not being able to make it work properly, but I'm glad I managed to join in for part of it at least. Thank you very much.